1962, Columbia Pictures released Lawrence of Arabia, a nearly four-hour epic film depicting T.E. Lawrence, a British military officer who played a key role in World War I. The movie was a smash hit. It earned the equivalent of what would be today $600 million at the box office and swept the Oscars, including Best Picture. Since then, its reputation has only grown, and it is now considered one of the greatest films ever made. It's even the film that Steven Spielberg credits for inspiring him to become a director. What most people don't know, however, is that Lawrence of Arabia is based on Lawrence's book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, an autobiographical account of his role in World War I. It's one of the most profound reading experiences I've ever had. My name is Charles Stang. Um, I'm a professor at Harvard Divinity School, and um, I'm the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions there. Stang first came across this book when he was abroad in the 1990s. Well, I was living in England at the time, and as you may know, England has these um, long breaks, these long vacations, and this was the Easter vacation. So I had, a, I had a month to myself, and I was traveling for the first time to the Middle East, and I was looking for something to bring with me to read. I happened to be reading at that time uh, another book called The Outsider by Colin Wilson, and he has a chapter in that book on T.E. Lawrence as a kind of archetypal outsider. I didn't know anything about T.E. Lawrence. And so I was surprised to learn uh, who he was, what he had done, and that he'd written this long and allegedly beautiful book called Seven Pillars of Wisdom. So I marched down the high street, bought a copy, and took it with me as I traveled through Israel, Palestine, Egypt, and Jordan. And I was reading the book in many of the places that the action of Seven Pillars takes place. Lawrence led an interesting life. He used this book not only to chronicle his time in the Middle East, but also to compile the complexities of his life and make sense of the world around him at the time. Mostly people cite Lawrence as like a very good guerrilla soldier or a, a kind of savvy diplomat or an ascetic adventurer. And all those things are all true, but I don't actually think that's the center around which to organize his chaotic and complicated life. I'm more inclined to look for it in these very difficult and demanding passages about what we would label sort of philosophy and religion. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Charles Stang to discuss Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Thomas Edward Lawrence was born in Wales in 1888. In 1910, when he was 22, he was offered a position as an archaeologist in northern Syria for the British Museum. Four years later, while he was still in the Middle East, World War I began. Lawrence remained in the Middle East for almost a decade, working for the British military during the war. He returned to the United Kingdom after the war and wrote Seven Pillars of Wisdom. It is a book that defies genre and definition, and I think that's actually one of its achievements. And I think 
It's quite intentional on his part. It is on its surface a chronicle of his part in the Arab revolt. But that actually takes up only a small portion of its hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, much more than that is a description of the landscape, sometimes in excruciating detail, um, a description of the people that he was traveling th through and with, uh, specifically the nomadic tribes that he was um, working with, the Bedouin. Before the war, Lawrence set out to write a scholarly book about seven great cities of the Middle East, titled Seven Pillars of Wisdom. He abandoned the project, but kept the title. He began writing this Seven Pillars of Wisdom in 1919. On a train ride, he tragically misplaced his briefcase that contained a nearly complete draft of the manuscript and had to start over. He finished the book in 1922, and it was first published in 1926. Lawrence wanted to write more than just a war chronicle. Although he does talk about the war, he paints a broader picture, including contemplations on the desert, religion, and landscape. And the thing that really attracted me to it were these sort of almost arias, these sort of philosophical and theological meditations on topics as diverse as the theological significance of the desert, the birth of monotheism, uh, the body and the spirit and the war between them. And that's what sort of really drew me into this text. When Lawrence first arrived in Syria, the country was part of the Ottoman Empire. This empire covered much of the modern Middle East, including present-day Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Turkey. In World War I, the Ottoman Empire sided with Germany. Germany was fighting the Allied forces, France, Russia, Italy, and Britain. So by virtue of aligning with Germany, the Ottoman Empire is now at odds with Britain and its allies. Um, and Britain, just to remind everyone at this point, has uh, both control over Egypt, much of Iraq, and of course, famously, India. So its interests are very proximate to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire's reach included what is today Saudi Arabia. But the people in that region wanted independence from the Ottoman Empire. Britain saw these Arab forces as potential allies. What was the Arab Revolt and what was T.E. Lawrence doing there? The Arab Revolt was conceived as an opportunity to harass the Ottoman Empire from the Eastern Front. And perhaps if lucky enough to deal a, a, a fatal blow to the Ottoman Empire in such a way, or uh, to deal a blow to the Ottoman Empire in such a way that they would fall out of the uh, war and expose Germany. The Arab revolt started when certain British administrators opened a correspondence with a particular family, Sharif Hussein, the Emir of Mecca, to, to encourage him to start a revolt so he was the emir of Mecca and Medina, and that family is the Hashemite dynasty. So the Arab revolt started when the British were trying to convince this dynasty to revolt. The British imagined this revolt would start in the Arab Peninsula and then reach up north through Syria. To get the Arab forces to agree to the revolt, the British promised that after the war, 
they would recognize this territory as a single, independent, unified Arab state, which would extend from present-day Syria in the north to present-day Yemen in the south. This agreement was reached through the McMahon-Hussein correspondence. This was a series of letters exchanged between Great Britain and Hussein bin Ali, Sharif of Mecca, in which the British would recognize the Arab independence after the war in exchange for Hussein starting the Arab revolt. By this point, Lawrence had already been working for the British military for two years, surveying the Negev Desert in what is now Israel. In 1916, he was sent by the British to help organize the Arab revolt. Insofar as we can tell from Seven Pillars of Wisdom itself, what Lawrence did was serve as a kind of a sort of filter or film through which information passed from the British to the Arab side. He was literally a liaison. Eventually, um, his role grew and grew. He wasn't expecting it, and neither were the British. He wasn't a trained soldier, but on the fly, he had to learn enough demolitions to blow up railway trains. He wasn't a trained diplomat. But on the fly, he had to learn how to build, uh, help build a coalition of all of these Arab tribes. Because, of course, it wasn't just the Emir's family in Mecca that he need, they needed. They needed all of these tribes through whose territory the revolt was moving. They needed their either um, complicity or their full cooperation. And these were tribes that where some of them were allies, some of them were rivals for scarce resources like wells, like water, and some of them were open enemies. So Lawrence helped the um, Prince Faisal, who was the emir's son, who became the kind of principal leader of the revolt. Lawrence helped him build this coalition. Sharif Hussein's son, Prince Faisal, together with Lawrence and the Arab forces, made their way up what is today the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, using guerrilla-style war tactics to weaken the Ottoman Empire. It was essentially an insurgent campaign where they harassed the uh, Ottoman forces. They never really engaged them conventionally. What they did instead was um, they would... Uh, detonate bombs all up and down the their supply chain, which was essentially a single railroad that ran from Mecca all the way to Damascus. This was known as the Hejaz Railway. Its destruction further weakened the Ottoman Empire. And the Arab revolt essentially moved north as the British were pushing up from Egypt towards Damascus. They took Beersheba and then Jerusalem and eventually Damascus. And the Arab revolt was the sort of eastern wing of that movement. In 1919, the British and Arabs captured Damascus, marking the end of the war. Later that year, during the Paris Peace Conference, treaties were signed and decisions were made on the settlement of the war. Lawrence attended the conference dressed in Arab robes, along with Prince Faisal and other members of the Arab revolt. He had developed a close friendship with them and wanted to make sure they got what they were promised by the British. So he engaged um, the um, Arabs in this revolt on the promise that they would have some kind of self-determination. I mean, he was very ambivalent about the revolt and what came in its wake. He, you can see that in the opening pages of Seven Pillars of Wisdom. He is torn 
about whether he should have ever engaged the Arabs in this, knowing that the British were making contradictory promises to the French about renewing their colonial influence in Syria and Lebanon. As agreed to in the McMahon-Hussein correspondence before the war, the Arab forces were expecting their land to be recognized by the British as an independent nation. After the war, the British essentially reneged on their promise, claiming that they had a different understanding of the agreement. Some of the Arabs who participated in the revolt were looking forward to a robust self-determination. And at the conclusion of the war, they came to the Paris Peace Conference uh, hoping to have that self-determination affirmed by the, so to speak, world powers. They found themselves um, sorely disappointed because, as Lawrence goes on to explain, the old men of empire <laughs> came in and remade the world uh, just as they, just as it was before. So, what influence did Lawrence have on the shape of the Middle East in the outcome, and and maybe more broadly, what is his role in the final decades of British imperialism? Okay, so obviously the most significant thing, and this is of course not attributable only to Lawrence, but to the um, to the British campaign against the Ottoman Empire and the Arab Revolt generally. But the Ottomans are essentially swept out of the Middle East. So what's going to come in the wake of the Ottomans? After the Paris Peace Conference, much of the Middle East was left unresolved. In 1921, Britain assigned Colonial Secretary Winston Churchill with the task of sorting out the post-war Middle Eastern policy. Meanwhile, in the years following the war, Lawrence had received international recognition for his role in the war and for being a critic of British policy. This caught Churchill's attention. Winston Churchill, very, very savvy young man, uh, said, I'm going to engage this star who has publicly been, you know, he's been writing editorials against British policy. I'm going to engage him and, help, and ask him to help us forge a new policy. And over the course of the next year or two, they essentially settle the modern Middle East. They gave Lebanon and Syria to France, and Palestine fell under British control. They put Prince Abdullah, another son of Sharif Hussein's, in charge of Palestine. They placed his other son, Prince Faisal, leader of the Arab Revolt, as king of Iraq. Their father, Sharif Hussein, continued to rule over Mecca. But another ruler named Ibn Saud, who had already conquered much of the Arab Peninsula, also had his eye on Mecca. So that's where they leave things. They leave a, a peninsula kind of with these two strong men vying for control, the Emir of Mecca, Ibn Saud. We all know where that goes because, of course, the peninsula is now Saudi Arabia. Ibn Saud eventually extends his reach uh, consolidates his control over the entire peninsula. The uh, uh, King Abdullah, um, that family is still in control of Jordan. They are that the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan is the last remaining Hashemite dynasty, and that was they were put in, put there directly by the British in 1921. If you see, look at a map of the modern Middle East the borders of these nation states are 
borders established by the British in 1921. I mean, there are straight lines through deserts where, you know, no desert, they don't make, it doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any, it, it makes even less sense when you think of the fact that these deserts are home to nomadic people who are moving um, across vast territories and we are living with that same map, even though there are new governments, new leaders, whatnot. The currency, it was established by the British and Lawrence was a part of it. It was during this period of sorting out the Middle East that Lawrence wrote Seven Pillars of Wisdom. The text shows his ambivalence to how things played out after the war. On the surface, he claimed to be satisfied with Churchill's solutions, but deep down, he felt it wasn't entirely fair to the Arabs. At the same time, his public reputation as a war hero was growing. Lawrence became a hero in Britain because you had a public that was devastated by the losses in the war. Lawrence himself lost two of his four brothers on that front. And in the wake of the war, Lawrence was discovered by an American journalist and essentially peddled as a kind of romantic counterpoint to the horrors of the Western Front. So everything that was devastating about the Western Front, even though the Allies prevailed at such staggering costs, in the East, there were so few British losses, and there was a kind of Orientalist fantasy ready to hand with this dashing young British officer helping lead um, these uh, these Arab uh, nomads to um, a glorious victory. Now, that in and of itself is a myth, but it was a myth very powerfully peddled to the British and American public in uh, the immediate wake of the war. Why do you think he wrote this? Like, what was his motivation? The dedication to Seven Pillars of Wisdom is a remarkable poem to someone or something, the initials S.A. And no one knows who or what exactly S.A. is, what it refers to, who it refers to. Although most people, and I include myself here, believe that it refers to a young man who uh, Lawrence uh, often refers to as Daum, uh, Daum was one of the young men who worked on the archaeological site uh, in Syria where Lawrence was uh, a resident archaeologist for several years before the war. And this young man and Lawrence had obviously a close and intimate relationship. I think it's undeniable that Lawrence loved him, was in love with him. Almost certainly not a relationship that was consummated. Lawrence's love for this young man helps explain his motivation for uh, not only writing Seven Pillars of Wisdom, but even imagining the Arab revolt itself. As the war was approaching, Lawrence left the archaeological site hoping to return. But things didn't work out as expected. 
He became an intelligence officer and was in the war longer than he anticipated. Lawrence wasn't able to get in touch with Daum during the war because communication was interrupted. Several days before the revolt ended with its entry into Damascus, the Arabs' entry into Damascus, Lawrence learned, we don't know quite how, but he learned through someone that this young man, Daum, had died. Um, I believe he died of typhus, but I'm not sure about that. So he died just before Lawrence was about to achieve the end he was seeking. Now that helps make sense of this dedicatory poem. So, to S.A., I loved you, so I drew these tides of men into my hands and wrote my will across the sky and stars to earn you freedom, the seven-pillared worthy house, that your eyes might be shining for me when we came. Death seemed my servant on the road till we were near and saw you waiting when you smiled and in sorrowful envy he outran me and took you apart into his quietness. Love, the way-weary, groped to your body, our brief wage, ours for the moment, before earth's soft, soft hand explored your shape and the blind worms grew fat upon your substance. Men prayed me that I set our work, the inviolate house, as a memory of you, but for fit monument I shattered it unfinished. And now the little things creep out to patch themselves hovels in the marred shadow of your gift. Why did he write Seven Pillars of Wisdom? Why did he engage in the Arab revolt? There's many answers to that question, but one answer we can't ignore is that he had this deeply personal, loving relationship and that he wanted to be able to offer his beloved a gift which was freedom for the entire Arab people, <laughs> a, a gift he was never able to deliver because the young man died before the revolt's conclusion. The war left Lawrence disenchanted with British policy. He was openly critical of the British government in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Well, at the same time as he was being peddled as a kind of romantic hero, a kind of salve to the uh, to the public that had just been devastated by the war, he was uh, a, a, a public critic of the British um, government's reversal or failure to live up to its promises to the Arabs. That's the particular thing he was calling attention to. But more generally, what he was calling attention to uh, was the ways in which the ends of empire which were profiting the elite in Britain, were being pursued at the expense of not just the subject peoples, but the rank-and-file British themselves. Lawrence was shedding light on the dark underbelly of British imperialism. He respected the British soldiers for their heroism and patriotism that he witnessed during the war. But he was critical of how the elite simply fed them into the imperial machine. What was for me very interesting is the realization that the British Empire was like a hydra. It had so many heads. There was no single agency directing this thing. It makes sense. It was so massive. Um, but there are all these different p 
parts of the British Empire um, vying for uh, influence and control. And they were at odds with one another. And, um, and Lawrence calls attention to that fact. So for in, in, in this case, the, he, he criticizes, specifically will criticize, say, the British um, turning their backs on the Arabs' hopes for some kind of self-determination because the British wanted to maintain uh, petrol production in Mesopotamia. So that kind of instrumental uh, exploitative logic Lawrence calls attention to. Now, what's curious is though he's he's ambivalent. He's at this moment of he's ambivalent about British the British Empire's aims. He's he's a patriot, uh, but at the same time he's a critic. What's curious to me is that as the years roll on after Lawrence's death, he is remembered and criticized as a kind of unthinking, uncritical cog in the imperial machine. Despite being critical of the British Empire, Lawrence is largely remembered as just the opposite. His criticisms, however, did inspire future writers and thinkers opposed to colonialism. Um, so he's much more savvy and uh, critical and complicated than he's given credit for. I guess I'd like to spend some time now um, with the mystical or literary or meditative parts of the writing. And you as a theologian, <laughs> as a scholar of religion, talk us through what what are these passages saying um, what did you, how did you interpret them the first time reading and, and how have they sat with you over the decades? Um, and and should, should more people spend some time with these passages? In answer to that last question, I would say yes. And one of the things that's been most curious to me over the years is realizing how little attention these kinds of meditative these sort of mystical meditations have received uh, from readers. Readers are much more likely to ask whether or not this detail of the military chronicle is true or false than they are to take seriously these meditations. The vast expanse of the desert had a significant influence on Lawrence, and he felt it was important to include. And that experience of the sort of divine nothingness of the desert is what Lawrence found intoxicating and served as a kind of orientation for him throughout the campaign and honestly throughout the rest of his life. He continued to seek out that kind of experience of annihilating emptiness th through different means. Um, but that is what the desert for him essentially was. And he was convinced that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all built on the edifice of their founder's first experience with the desert. Lawrence wasn't religious in the traditional sense, but he did find some form of spirituality in the desert. 
One of the problems in trying to figure out what Lawrence believes is that he's often ventriloquizing through the Arabs he's just claiming to describe. So many of his descriptions of what the Arabs believe, these Bedouin believe, seems very thinly veiled uh, confession. He's essentially exploring what he thinks, but putting it in their mouths or attributing it to them. So having maybe added that caveat, I would say what I sense in Lawrence is a kind of paradoxical confession on the one hand of a transcendent source that is not a that is not God, right? Or not God as, as he has been taught to think of God, not the biblical God, but some sort of transcendent source that is closer to nothingness. And the idea that all of creation is also somehow God or is somehow reflective of the fullness of that source. And you can find both of those claims in Christianity, of course, elsewhere. Um, But it is not the version of Christianity Lawrence was raised in, certainly. So one way you can think about Lawrence's religiosity is that he has he is recovering threads of a much richer tapestry of the Christian mystical tradition. But he doesn't recognize those as really Christian. In fact, he recognizes them or labels them more like atheism. And he's not wrong. Um, And so that's what I mean when I try to speak about this sort of atheistic mysticism in Lawrence. In Seven Pillars of Wisdom, Lawrence gives a lot of space for his meditations on the desert. It's very long and, uh, and it has large tracts of what I think it's fair to say are sort of boring landscape description. I mean, Lawrence gives amazingly detailed descriptions of different kinds of rock, sand, um, uh, formations. He's just, he's uh, enthralled with this detail. The book that really sold well, the bestseller of Seven Pillars of Wisdom was an abridgment made in 1927 called Revolt in the Desert, which stripped out a lot of the landscapes, stripped out all the mystical meditations, stripped out all the weird uh, philosophical and theological reflections. And what you get is a much cleaner adventure narrative, a war chronicle. That book sold like hotcakes in uh, both the United States and in uh, Britain, which I think tells you about what readers want. Uh, They don't want something that defies genre. Rock descriptions are a tough sell. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Could you tell us about the film, what you know about how it came about and why it was such a phenomenon and, you know, kind of the, the sad fact that that is how the world knows this man? As a film, it is an astonishing visual spectacle. It tells an amazing story. The cinematography of the desert, the composition of shots, 
is uh, unparalleled. I, I love the movie. I love it. But it has narrowed Lawrence as a figure and it has narrowed the geopolitical reality of what was going on, as any movie tends to do, right? But because of its success, that narrowing has um, paradoxically overshadowed everything else, which is much more complicated and subtle. And that's the point I find somewhat frustrating, is that the reception of Lawrence and Seven Pillars of Wisdom has actually a much more interesting, it's a much more interesting story prior to the movie. And then the movie, in my mind, sort of flattens the reception of him. And essentially, uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom is consigned to oblivion. No one reads it. Uh, it's not regarded as a significant work of literature in the early 20th century. And you think about books that were published right around the same time, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and James Joyce's uh, Ulysses, uh, both of which Lawrence read, esteemed, and admired, and actually hoped to kind of <laughs> um, rival. Uh, but, you know, it, Seven Pillars of Wisdom has been completely forgotten. You may find interesting that Lawrence himself thought that the book was, that, that the, the proper company of Seven Pillars of Wisdom was not those two books. He thought he aspired to write what he called a Titanic book. And the other instances of Titanic books are Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and Melville's Moby Dick. Yeah, incredibly ambitious. And, you know, I leave it to everyone to, to decide whether Seven Pillars of Wisdom deserves to be included among those books. Although it wasn't a bestseller, the book was well-received by some. Despite the fact that it's been largely forgotten, uh, in recent decades, it's instructive to me to realize that Lawrence's, that the first wave of reception of the book by Lawrence's um, uh, literary friends um, and colleagues uh, included E.M. Forster, George uh, Bernard Shaw, um, Robert Graves, and Winston Churchill, all of whom thought this book was an amazing monument and in some cases helped him uh, revise it and publish it. Um, I mean, Churchill says of Seven Pillars of Wisdom that it ranks with the greatest books ever written in the English language. That is no faint praise uh, from, from Churchill. Could you tell us about the end of his life sort of what, what happened to him? In the latter part of Lawrence's life, he became a real uh, aficionado of motorcycles. And he used to uh, love to go out on these long, super fast motorcycle rides on his bra superior, which he named Boanerges, which is the Sons of Thunder, the name that Jesus gives to the brothers Zebedee. Um, anyway... Lawrence uh, obviously never wore a helmet 
um, and used to speed along these small country lanes. And that got the better of him in May of 1935. He uh, had a motorcycle accident, suffered a traumatic head injury, and died six days later. Seven Pillars of Wisdom was originally published privately for friends and subscribers. Lawrence requested that it not be published outside this subscription until after he died. Weeks after his death, it was issued as a trade publication in the UK and the US. T.E. Lawrence created a work that documented his full experience of the war. But it was much more than a war story. It was a witness to the beauty and majesty of the desert, and an attempt to find meaning and solace in a world covered by a shadow of violence. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.